This episode of Clear and Vivid with Frank Santa Padre and Alan Zweibel is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Anybody who doesn't have a sense of humor, who takes everything too literally or is too dour, I just don't want to be near them. Uh, A sense of humor is not only jokes, but it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. So if your mind is in a place where nothing is funny or nothing makes you smile, what's the point? Going back to when I would teach comedy students or young stand-ups, they thought that it was about the jokes. How do I get the laughs? It's not about the jokes, it's about connecting. Start with that. Before you get on to how am I going to make these people laugh, get them to pay attention. That's Alan's wife, Belle, and Frank Santopadre. They've spent their lives finding the funny in the meaningful and the meaningful in the funny. I'm so glad to have you guys on the show. You know, we talk about communication all the time, but in all this time, we haven't talked about communicating by way of humor. And that's one of the it's one of the main forms I have of communicating, and I bet it is yours too. Right, it's a great equalizer, you know. Anybody that uh, you can make laugh or who can make you laugh—that's what I love. Right away, yeah. You, you're on the same playing field, and and there's a connection. There's an immediate connection. Don't you? Do you? Uh, do you mistrust anyone that doesn't have a sense of humor? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, anybody who doesn't have a sense of humor, who takes everything too literally or is too dour, I just don't want to be near them. I'm serious. It's a a sense of humor is not only jokes, but it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. So if your mind is in a place where nothing is funny or nothing makes you smile— I, I, what's the point? I, you know, I have this feeling, I, I don't have anything to back it up, but I have this feeling that when you're laughing, you're more vulnerable. And folks who won't laugh, it seems to me, are protecting themselves, a little bit protecting themselves from the openness that you can get when you're laughing together. Interesting that you mentioned vulnerability, because I think being vulnerable makes you a better comedic performer. Oh, tell about that. That's well, interesting. I, I, the, I, the audience ought to know who's talking. Now, Frank is going to talk. Go ahead, Frank. <laughs> I think that this, it, sometimes I've written for CEOs, people who are not funny, for, yes. a, li- for a living. Yes. <laughs> and I, I won't mention any names. So I've done a lot of ghost writing for captains of industry. And uh, they're not used to that. They're not used to being vulnerable. Right. They're, not, they're, they're used to being power players. They're used to being people in charge. Then they think they have to convey a certain amount of control. Yeah, and And you have to convince them that the audience will love you if you're vulnerable, if you're self-deprecating. So would that mainly be the humor you'd write for them, self-deprecating? Would you have them deprecate other people? Uh, Believe it or not, mostly self-deprecating because I think there's something that allows the audience to relate. Yeah. Because here's a billionaire, owner of a football team, and now he's going to try to make you laugh 
Well, you think of the great comedians that we've loved through the ages. They were all vulnerable, all made fun of themselves, and even more so were generous enough to have their supporting cast make fun of them. Yeah. Whether it was Jack Benny. Benny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, start with him. Oh, yeah. With with his bad violin playing and... uh, and, and his cheapness. His cheapness, yeah. It was welcome. But w- w- there is a form of comedy where you deliberately insult the person, the roast. And, Frank, you've written roast. Have you, Alan? Oh, yeah. Oh, we have. We've written oh, a couple together, I think. Yeah. Really? Many years ago, before I got the job at Saturday Night Live, I used to write for a lot of stand-up comedians, many of whom were on the roast. So what's the secret of a roast joke? Can you say anything? You can say anything. You you go for basically what the guy's reputation is, like Milton Berle, for sure, example. Sure, He had a reputation for stealing everybody's jokes. Right. Thief of bad gags, right? And that's exactly yeah. right. Thief of bad gags. And wait, also, wait. Oh, oh thief, of, thief, thief of bad, bad gags. gags. I never well, heard that. You know, what would happen <laughs> is he would, as the, as the roasters would get up and tell their jokes, okay, and then they would discard that index card, Milton would get up behind them and pick them all <laughs> up and put them in his pocket. Yeah. So he played along with the, the joke about himself, you know. I loved writing roasts. I was thinking about that on the way over here. It's it's just, it's cathartic because you really release the worst, you access the worst parts of yourself. There's the, the, this the most mean-spirited, petty. Yeah. Which, and the, you and know, how, do the, how do the roastees take it? It depends. I, I mean, it, you know, it, it depends on their sense of humor. Uh, the Friars Roast, you wrote on a bunch of Friars Roasts. I, I was on a, a bunch of those. I've, um, look, they know what they're getting themselves Pretty much, into. they should. They know that this isn't going to be, you know, they're going to be, you know, flowers. <laughs> it's not going to be extolling their virtues. They know that they're going to go for the jugular. And the fact that somebody would submit themselves to that tells me that they could laugh about themselves and yeah. they have other people slaughter them that way. Yeah. You have to know what you're getting into. And it's funny too, because I'm sometimes approached again by corporations who say, we want to do a roast. Has this happened to you? Uh, oh, that's And they're, when, when they find out that what actual are, blood will be drawn. Yes. <laughs> they run miles from the idea. And they, you, you have to explain each time, and I've gone through this dozens of times, are you sure you want a roast and not a testimonial <laughs> dinner? No, we want a roast. And they see one or two roast yeah. jokes. And, and no, they run for the hills. I think yeah. we'll do a testimonial dinner. And this just happens time and time again. They don't really know what they're getting into. They like the idea of it. But in a corporate setting, where people could take offense or take something like lose that seriously. Or lose a job. You don't know what the yeah. politics are. Uh, they change their minds quickly. Best roast joke, before I forget it, for me, ever, and it's a simple joke, was Belzer following Freddie Roman at uh, one of the friars roasts. And what was it? I don't remember. He got up and he said, "Freddie Roman, ladies and gentlemen, Jack Ruby had a longer TV career." <laughs> <laughs> And I think of that joke to this day. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know if it came from you, Alan. Uh, no, it didn't. It's just but a I'm gem. Gonna, oh, man. It will soon. <laughs> what makes a joke? How do you go about making a joke? And, and, and by the way, I know you both do other things than make jokes. Alan, you write plays. You write books. So we don't only have to talk about jokes, oh, no, but, but the, the, the idea of a joke, the, even even in humor where something it, goes a different way, how do you do it? Well, you know something I, I have found through the years, and perhaps you have too, that 
jokes in and of themselves, yeah, there's something formulaic about them, but when you write scripts, jokes take on a different form because it's out of the mouths of a character, mm -hmm. okay? So if you know somebody and you know who they are, they'll make you laugh. And you know, it's always that thing, oh, you had to be there. Well, we are here. We're yeah. creating characters who say funny things. And if you think about Jack Benny, legend has it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the longest laugh in the history of radio hmm. came out of Jack Benny's silence. Yeah. Okay, your money or your life. Oh, yeah. And the longer he didn't say anything, the more the audience laughed because they knew he was the cheap guy who was thinking it over. Right. You know, but... Um, but we've always written jokes in character. We've always written jokes for people. For people, exactly. I mean, and I, I know that writing a joke that in and of itself has a punchline at the end is a harder form. It, it seems much harder to me. You, the character in a play can be thinking something, and when his th or her thinking comes to the surface, that's enough for it to be funny. That's exactly right. But that's not the same as a joke. Where, where there are story jokes, and there are one-liner jokes, and they're all, all different kinds of jokes, but the ones that are, the, seems to me, the hardest are the shorter, pithier ones. Yeah. I might have There's told you this, to Alan, when we had dinner that time, that I, when I um, auditioned for Saturday Night Live, I gave Lorne Michaels a book that had 1,100 jokes that I had written in it. Wow. 1,100. Li literally 1,100. That, that must have taken you a week. That, that, that kept <laughs> me up a little bit, yeah. And uh, he, they were jokes that I had written for all those Catskill guys mm -hmm. and then just, just pure joke writing. And there was the joke that got me the job on SNL, and Lorne is the first to say that, is I had written a joke to show you how long ago it was from the reference points, saying that the post office is about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10 cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter, okay? <laughs> still, now, still a great line. Okay, so, <laughs> so he read it and he went, uh, good. <laughs> Good. And he closed the book. They, they, they went the other 10,000, uh, you know, 1,099 jokes. But that joke took a couple of weeks to write. It was 1975. Tell about that. That's really interesting. How did that happen? Well, it was 1975, and it was we were coming upon the bicentennial in 1976. So the post office was indeed issuing commemorative stamps for the bicentennial. So I said, okay, that's a good area. What would be a funny commemorative stamp? And I'm going, I came upon prostitution. And then I'm going, okay, that's funny. Where's the punchline? And my God, I you take the stamp out to dinner first. I had all these different variations of what to do with a prostitute stamp. And then when I went, uh, uh, okay, when you lick it, okay, before I came up with a quarter, I had this. I had to stamp moaning. <laughs> <laughs> so you had you got you developed it in stages. You, it was because it everybody came in licks little a stamp. You ways. went back to the image of using a stamp. What happens when you use a stamp? You lick it. You lick it. So though, so if you lick it, if that's part of the joke, what could be the next step? What's the next step? That's it. And you and it seems like part of a good joke to me. I've always wanted to talk to people who really know joke making to see how this lands on you. It's. A, a logical step, but it's not the next step. It's like a stone on the water. You skip a couple of steps, and the third is logical, but it's inevitable. Yeah. But it's 
It's, but there's a structure to them. There's it's a, a surprise, but it's inevitable. And yeah. that, and that, it's it still makes sense. But you've skipped enough steps that it comes at you from left field. Yeah, the element of surprise. Yeah, that's a joke where you 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 almost kick yourself for not seeing it coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Credit goes to the writer because you fooled me. Right, right. Even well, even as a professional, I would a, not suss that joke out. Oh, and that's interesting you should say that because I'll watch a play, I'll watch a movie, or I'll watch a stand-up comic, and I'm sitting there and I'm going, all right, where's he going? And I say, I hope he doesn't do And I try to predict yeah. where the conversation, where the dialogue, or where the joke is, and you always want to be surprised. You think this, you go, oh, thank God he didn't do this, he did that. And you go, wow, that's new. That's You're watching a ping pong game while we're laughing at comedy. That's exactly right. What do you think about the idea that there are jokes that a group can tell about themselves, but if somebody outside the group tells the joke, it's offensive? Does it depend on the circumstances, or is that always true? I don't think it was always true. I I think you may disagree, but as I look back, when we were growing up, Everyone was fair game for everyone. You told Polish jokes, Mm -hmm. you told Gentile jokes, you told Jewish jokes, and then everyone laughed, and then you went home. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Those days are over. Those days are long gone. Yeah. Um, I ran into Chris Rock about two, three months ago, and he's one of those guys who refuses to, uh, to perform at colleges anymore. It's like walking through a minefield. Anything that you say. Like Jerry. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly Jerry, the same Jerry thing with Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Oh, he, well, do, he, he doesn't like, he resents the political correctness of college campuses and won't perform at them anymore. So that people often taking umbrage for another group. Yeah, that's exactly right. We overextend ourselves to protect other people. You know, if you tell me uh, a Jewish joke, I'll, I'll, I'll laugh or not based on the humor of it. I don't think that you're an anti-Semite. More than sometimes, I'll be with somebody who doesn't think what I said is funny. And instead of laughing or smiling, they say, exactly. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> or that's funny. Yeah. Which well, is that's without, funny. Without that's laughing. funny at least acknowledges it was supposed to be funny. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but exactly means, I heard you. Yes, there's some under, there's some logic to what you said, yeah. but of course it's not worth. They took it as a pearl of wisdom instead of a joke. <laughs> pearl of wisdom. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were being philosophical. Yeah. Well, don't they say comedy writers won't oh, give you the laugh? They just say that's funny. It, it, that's absolutely. You've been in right. a million it, writers' it, rooms. It, it, it's part of the jargon. You go, okay. It almost becomes technical, you know. And when you do make everyone laugh, wow, that's unusual. But by and large, it's like, oh, that's hysterical. Let's write it down. Let's move on to the next joke. It's part of the uh, work product in a way. Do you when, you, when you come up with a good line, whether it's a joke or a comedy or a character line, do you hear the audience laughing in your head? Yeah. One do hopes. you, Frank? One hopes. I mean, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you know it's funny, but other times you actually hear laughter, I think. You hear laughter, and then you put it in front of an audience, and they tell you whether or not you're crazy. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you're, you're hearing things. You're also dependent. You're dependent on the person delivering it. Yeah, because that's, that's the main problem with humor. There's a middleman, <laughs> right? I, one, time, one time, Joy, Joy was on the uh, the View, and uh, something came up that I thought was funny, 
and I texted her what I thought was a funny line. <laughs> and she she wears her her oh, Apple I, Watch on I the show, and she saw she saw my line come up on the, her watch, so she said it, and it didn't get a laugh. So later, I, I I wrote her an email. I said the delivery was terrible. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the uh, it's the the venue. <laughs> yeah. It's the 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 view audience is it's a strange thing because they're not conditioned. They're not really expecting jokes. Right. They they see it as an issue show. Mm. And they, they're there for the lively conversation or the celebrity banter. But I think that's, and I've been there six years, so I think sometimes jokes take them by surprise. So it wasn't the delivery, it was the audience. I'm giving you, I'm cutting you a break here, anyway, Alan. Right? Yeah, I'm cutting you a break. <laughs> <laughs> My father, who started out in burlesque, was a straight man in burlesque, told me when I was nine years old, and we were starting to do sketches together. He said, if you know it's funny, they'll know it's funny. Yeah, There's a little bit of that confidence that you have. Right. That's profound. I used to tell that to my comedy students. Make sure you believe in the material and make sure that you're having a good time. Yeah. Because psychologically, they can sense you struggling. They can sense your lack of faith. Right. So so that brings up a question in my head. I, I, a lot of people, they must come up to you too, a lot of civilians come up to tell me a joke. And it's usually a long story. <laughs> well, you're recognized. <laughs> it's a long story where something happens and then I know it's going to happen three times before we get to the punchline. And uh-huh. then, he, then he went to another doctor and the doctor said, I'm driving right So he didn't like that. He went to another doctor and the doctor said... What what what's wrong with when people don't tell a joke right? What's, is there a good way to tell a joke? Lack of economy. Uh, yeah, for, for economy one. is the for big one. thing. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to go through all seven doctors before the eighth <laughs> delivers the punchline. <laughs> Two would be fine. Okay, so he went to a few doctors, and then <laughs> every doctor in America, you know. You know. Uh, that's funny. And then, and then there's a lot of acting out of the. Uh, this this is a problem for you when yeah, you're walking around I, the streets. I don't like jokes. I hate jokes. Uh huh. I can only remember one joke, and I, and I've told it to so many people. Like, there's no point telling it anymore. You know the joke about the ventriloquist can't get work anymore. Mm-mm. I love this story. <laughs> he goes to his agent. He said, "I'm dying. I can't eat." You're not getting me any work. I'm the best ventriloquist in the world. You don't know what I can do. I'm incredible. The guy says, I can't get you a job. There's no variety shows on television. They're all gone. I can't get you a job. Why don't you take up seances? Why would I do that? He says, because you can throw your voice. You can tell people they're talking to their dead relatives. (laughs) And you'll make a few dollars. So the guy opens his store. The first customer comes in. She says, I'd like to talk to my husband. He says, okay, here's my rate list. For $5, you can talk to your dead husband. For $10, he'll talk back to you. For $15, he'll talk back to you while I drink this glass of water. (laughs) When we come back, Frank and Alan and I talk about how far you can go with a joke that might make people uncomfortable. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Alan Zweibel and Frank Santopadre. I was wondering if you guys had some insight into this, because you've written for many comedians. And there's a myth about comedians 
that they're morose. Is that true, do you think? Because comedy, to some extent, involves facing the truth of something, bringing the truth to the surface that everybody else says, well, we, we know that, but we're not going to bring it to the surface because that would be impolite. Yeah, and I think real funny comes from real pain, from 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 being or or from being a, a genuine social misfit. You agree with this? To me, oh, the yeah. funniest people. I mean, Groucho was a miserable guy. You know, Chaplin was a miserable person. I've never met a truly funny, well-adjusted person. Have you? In comedy or in, yeah, in, in life? In comedy or life. I've never met somebody. Well, you I, seem sort of normal to me. Were you, well, and you, and you make you, up Alan. all these jokes. <laughs> I'm not. I'm also not a performer. I think there's something to the psychology of, of people who are actually going to go up and do the selling. There's, but I think there's a, a writer has a different mentality and a different well, makeup. Well, Neil Simon, many years ago, he had an article, and he described the comedy writer as a two-headed monster. One was the head went through life, got caught in traffic, went to the ATM, went to a doctor, and whatever, and then all of a sudden unannounced and without provocation, the other head emerges and it sort of just like hovers above the first head and makes fun of the life that this head is living. That's interesting. Okay. An interesting idea. Which is a really cool idea. It and is. he called it, uh, I think he called it the writer, comedy writer is schizophrenic or something like that. And I, when, before I married Robin, I had her read that. I said, this is what you're going to be living with. Okay? <laughs> that was so nice of you. No, no, no. And, and she said, and, Neil Simon? And, and Neil Simon? Wow. Can I call him Doc? <laughs> <Can I? laughs> but, to, <laughs> but to this day, I'll be sitting there like this in the living room. Yeah, you, and she'll you're come sitting in, there like that looking morose. Morose. Yeah. And then she'll come in with a thousand rolls of toilet paper from Costco or wherever the hell she was. And she goes, can't you help me? And I'm going... Can't you see I'm working? <laughs> okay. So there is something to be said about all that. I think the darkest people, I don't know what this is, that are the funniest people. I think David Letterman always made me laugh. I don't know if you're with me on this, AZ, in a way that Jay Leno did not. I'm with you. Yeah, totally. Because one guy to me, and I'm not trying to disparage him, is, is a sort of a get-along guy. Uh, and the other guy is uh, uh, an iconoclast or, or uh, you know, almost a bridge burner. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there was a daring a, there. There's a daring to— Is to, that an essential part of comedy or, or of the joke, the idea of burning a bridge? Tina Fey said to me on, on this show once that Amy Poehler had told her that she thought an essential part of comedy was breaking norms— it, is that, do you think that's what you're doing? You might not have analyzed it that way, but on reflection, do you think that's what you're doing with a lot of jokes? On reflection, I think yes. I mean, look at my friend Larry David. You know, he'll, he'll do an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm about somebody who died on 9-11. Yeah. It mm. wasn't in the towers. He was on a bike and a bus hit him uptown, okay? And oh. he, okay, he was on 57th Street. He was nowhere near the towers, okay? <laughs> so so, he, well, he's turned it into an art form. It, yeah. The most the most questionable topics, the most, most challenging. And what he does is he takes a minutia and he makes a seda out of it, yeah. you know? And it's a... <laughs> the, do you watch that show? The I, most, I love it. The mm. most taboo topic. Yeah, and, that, that, and th he's another example uh, uh, I know he plays a misanthrope, and I don't know Larry. I've met him a couple of times, but I, I think there are probably some real that 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 there's some crossover there. 
between him and the character. And isn't that part of what makes him so brilliant? Yeah, because here's here's the thing with Larry and people like him, but if we're talking about Larry, there's an interesting uh, duality here because he's sensitive enough to know how we feel about things. So he's in touch with feelings, Mm -hmm. and then he takes it, and then he puts his own twist on it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's skating on the surface. He's not a sociopath. He's not a sociopath. <laughs> he's connected. He, 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 that's exactly right. right. He's connected to what he feels, what we all feel, we all feel. And then he just goes another way with it, you know? And um, So that's very interesting to me because I'm so interested in how we relate to one another, how we are sensitive to one another's feelings. And both of you guys have that ability. And yet you both are experts at joke making. And we're talking about how joke making, at least in this part of our conversation, includes breaking social norms, talking about things that other people find untouchable in conversation. How do you keep contact with the person you're talking to? How do you know that you can go so far with this person you're you're being sociable with? That's a good question. Well, that's, yeah, there's a little bit of a How do you know? Feeling out is a little bit of a dance. I can go this far. Uh, maybe I, if they laughed, okay, maybe I can go a little further. But there is a little bit of, uh, um, of a dance that's played there. You, it, one, a great example of that, I think, was, and maybe you guys remember it, once again, right after 9-11, about a week or so later, um, Saturday Night Live came on for the first time since 9-11. And in the cold open, there was um, Mayor Giuliani and a bunch of firemen and uh, policemen, and they did a tribute about 9-11, and it was very, very, you know, straightforward mm-hmm. and it was somewhat somber. And then Lorne walked up to them and he spoke a little bit and then asked Mayor Giuliani, he said, listen, um, are we allowed to be funny? And Giuliani said, why start now? <laughs> okay. It's very clever. <laughs> okay. My guess is Lorne wrote that. Okay. And um, th- there was the acknowledgement that, you know, when are we allowed to laugh again? Yeah. How can we laugh again? When is it okay? And that broke the ice, you know? So, um, once so that again, was an awareness of what the audience yeah, was going through. Yeah. The whole thing about too soon is I always think there would what, – what year – what did the joke come into existence? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy the show? Yes. It, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not eighteen seventy. <laughs> Wasn't that the? Isn't that, that your? That was in crimes that's and Lester's line, yeah. right? Tragedy plus time, yeah. right? But, and it bends, it breaks, right? Yeah. Is there a, a kind of humor? You don't have to name names, but is there a kind of humor that you really don't like? That's that's not, or or do you, do you are you able to respect all well? made humor or well-made jokes? That's a great question. Oh, that is a wonderful question. Can you, you can like something and yet not necessarily, <laughs> can you like a joke and yet not necessarily respect the point of view or where it's coming from? Yeah, I think still so. Admi- admire the craftsmanship the of craftsmanship it? The craftsmanship that, wow, that well-written joke. Offended me. About, <laughs> you're, you're not allowed to do that about pedophilia. No, you're not allowed to. But great joke. Yeah. You know? yeah so yeah. there is a sort of um, duality there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like kicking down. You know, I don't. I don't like jokes that that make fun of 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 people who can't defend themselves. Uh-huh. Or I don't. I don't think the handicapped and people like that are are, are worthy joke targets. Right. Uh, I'm a I'm a big believer in 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 using humor to 
to to take people down or, or level the playing field. And these and and laughing at life's unfortunates to me is not not a not a very sophisticated form of humor. And that gets into the question of being sensitive to other people, relating to other people. That the question I brought up a minute ago about a a joke that a handicapped person might formulate about what they have to face as they go through life to another handicapped person might register as, oh, you said it. Yeah, that's funny. Right. Well, John Callahan, you know that cartoonist? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, his, if you don't know it, we'll turn you on to it. I mean, he's he's brilliant, disabled uh, disabled cartoonist, and, and does some wonderful but jokes about that, the life of a disabled person. That same joke made out of the blue by a non-handicapped person yeah. might, might seem offensive. Yeah, I, I, I don't like the, I don't like put, put downs uh, of, of people who I think are uh, disenfranchised or powerless. Is I guess is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just not it's not to my taste. Well, you know something, and then let's go back to guys like Rodney who take that and aim it towards themselves. So we laugh when they're doing this about themselves. Back to self-deprecating. Back to, because I used to write for Rodney, and there was um, jokes that I had wrote for him, had written for him that I'm not sure how how many, it may have gotten laughs from other people in and of themselves, but because it was this character. So when I had him say, Never got any respect. Even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend. Okay. <laughs> it, it got a laugh because it was mm-hmm. his character. Mm-hmm. Was that his joke or yours? I wrote it for him. Uh, I also great. wrote I had him saying, no one in my family ever got any respect. During a civil war, I had an uncle who fought for the West. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Terrific. It seems really um, important for some comedy to work, that the comedian has to have established a character in the mind of the audience. And for, except for Henny Youngman, whose, whose own character was partly talking in one line, sure, yeah. in the way he had developed a character. Can you do, can you be successful as a comic if you don't develop a character? I think it's harder because the jokes, your success is dependent on the jokes but who's saying it? Yeah. Okay, so where's the identity? Where's the identification with a person? So, like, what I used to do was when I used to write for those guys, if one guy wouldn't do the joke, it didn't matter because I'd give it to another guy and sell it to him for $7, which is what they were paying at the $7 time. $7 a $7 a joke. Wow. And, um, and you were happy to have that $7. Oh, I, because it helped me when yeah. I was working at the deli. Sure. It, 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 but you were a professional. Yeah, I was a professional. <laughs> I, 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 but it went up. $7, that's, it used to be 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> And so who, who who's saying it, there's a, a validity to it. Yeah. There's a character that it comes out of, so you buy into it. The thing is about having a, a unique character isn't just what the character tends to think or say, but it also seems to contribute to the style of delivery. Well, you're relating. I mean, again, going back to when I would teach comedy students or young stand-ups, they thought that it was about the jokes, they would always come in. You've done this, too. You've taught young young people. You've worked with young comics. The, the, how do I get the laughs? Yeah. What are the jokes? And it's not about it's not about the jokes. It's about connecting. It's about finding a persona or, a, or, a, or an identity that's going to 
Well, you, you, that you, sees you, things funny, or you're worth even listening to. Start yeah, with that. Yeah. Start before you before you get on to how am I going to make these people laugh? Get them to pay attention. Present yourself in a, in a way that you're somebody that must be listened so to. So this is good because we it's commanding a room. We started talking about the structure of a joke a little bit, and now you're talking about how no matter what the structure of the joke is, it's going to be a better joke if it's informed by a sensibility, a character, a way of looking at things. Something. And it can also inform the audience who the character is. It's a way of introduction. I know that when I do speaking engagements, and I've even done this on talk shows, when they ask, um, they'll read my credits, and uh, they'll say, uh, uh, how did you get started? And I say, well, the irony here is that uh, it wasn't even my idea to become a comedy writer, this was a decision that was made for me about 40 years ago by every law school in the United States. And they relate, they laugh, and they go, all right. So You're also making yourself vulnerable right off the bat. Make yourself vulnerable, uh, and you go, look what happened. I succeeded at this, but so I'm not intimidating any of you yeah. with my success. I failed here. I failed. It's almost the first thing out of your mouth. That's exactly right. So it's Larry David, I remember back in the day. Larry would get on stage, this is at the improvisation, where the audience was mostly on a Friday night, Saturday night, suburbanites, okay? You know, uh, Paisley and, uh, you know, Velcros and, and, and leisure suits and stuff. And I would sit in the back because he was my friend and I just admired the ingenuity. But back then, Larry had uh, Brillo kind of hair, like Larry from the fine from the Three Stooges. He had wire rim glasses, and he had a green army fatigue. So he looked totally different than the whole audience. And he'd get up, and he'd look out, and he'd go, "I feel very comfortable with you people. In fact, I feel so comfortable. I'm thinking of using the two form of the verb instead of usted." <laughs> funny. <laughs> now, Sorry. I'm sitting in the back clever. laughing my ass off. A, I think it's really funny. And B, the audience is like an oil painting. They're just, <laughs> they've never seen anything like this. And so, you know, as you know, when a comic hits a roadblock, especially right out of the box, you go a different way. Larry just kept on going. He said, I think a lot of people misuse the two form of the verb. <laughs> to go back but, to what you said well, earlier. Wait a second. He says, what, yeah. he says when, uh, the, when Brutus stabs Caesar, he says, A2 Brutus. Rudy said to Caesar, he says, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If there was ever time for Usted, it's now. That's funny. Okay, so, so right away you knew this guy lived on a different plane. Okay, to get him, I'm going to hook into that. So the presentation was as such where, all right, I'll make that adjustment. I'll let him take me where he wants to go. So Frank yeah. was probably bringing up, did it, did it work to keep at it, to keep repeating it? Did they finally left? Yeah, because as they got to know Larry— Okay, um, they accepted it from him. They liked it. Okay, you know, I, I saw the joke not work, and then later on I saw it embraced. Yeah, but there's a guy performing for himself and his ideas and a few friends that are going to get what he's doing. He's Absolutely. Not, he's, he's not playing to a room. He's not he, far from pandering. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he's almost, uh, from what I know about him in those days, almost, almost uh, rebelling almost resenting the idea that, that he, he has, has to, to get up and entertain. <laughs> yeah. He was pissed that the audience was there. Right. <laughs> a lot of those guys were became comedy writers. Yeah. That's that funny. was the, the comic known as you should really be a writer. 
We're running out of time. Jeez. But be- before you go— This is fun. <laughs> before we go, we have seven questions that we ask everybody, seven quick questions— Oh, wow. —that we ask oh, for seven it. quick answers of. And they're, they're, they're sort of about relating and communicating. And I'll ask you one at a time. Frank. Great. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? Oh, my God. <sighs> I think it's the answer to this question. You want a brutally honest answer? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the reason I, I cheated with an ex-girlfriend on my girlfriend at the time. That was the hardest thing to explain yes. to your girlfriend at the time. Yes. Okay. Because, it was, it, because there were deep-seated psychological reasons for my infidelity. See, 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 the truth is funny. That's <laughs> <laughs> why Bell is staring at me. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know whether to admire you or to stab you with this uh, magic marker. <laughs> what, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to explain to anybody? Wow. Um, I, I would actually have to say um, when I was first starting out doing what I'm doing, explain why I was becoming a comedy writer to people who thought I had no sense of humor. <laughs> Boy, is this guy going to starve to death? Uh, no, 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 trust me, I'm funny. <laughs> you don't, that's a hard thing to it's, do. It's great that neither one of you said the hardest thing I had to explain was a joke I wrote for a comedian. <laughs> you, 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 you seem to have gotten away <laughs> there with was, Well, there were, always, there were those, too. Okay, yeah. n- number two. How do you handle a nosy person? A nosy person? You want to take this one? I, I just sort of nod and say, uh-huh, every so often while I'm thinking about other stuff. I, 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 don't, I don't even think it bothers me that much. Oh. I think I understand that people are essentially nosy, nosy and gossips and voyeurs, and I, I'm pretty accepting of it. Is that wrong? No, I mean, <laughs> it, it ups my chances of being your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, how do you tell someone... That they have their facts wrong. Oh, I'm not good at. I'm not graceful about that. You'd say you're wrong. Yeah, my wife accuses me of being pedantic and 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 lecturing people and correcting. You don't have to tell their, me this. I'm not that nosy. <laughs> correcting their grammar. I I I I think I do it indelicately. Alan, how do you correct? Well, facts? you know, now that there's Google, it helps. Yeah. You know, you uh. know, yeah, you know something? You might be right that— um, Frederick Douglass is still alive. Yeah. 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 Let, let's just check it. <laughs> so that, that we do have a little out. <laughs> what's, the, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Wow. I got to think about that one. Can you come up with— This is so interesting, too. Well— That's a stumper. You're so big. Why is it so small? <laughs> <laughs> What are you, 6'4"? <laughs> <laughs> this is not Frank talking. Just want to be clear on that. <laughs> Since he promised he's going to identify us at the end, and we're taking his word for it. <laughs> All right. Okay, number five. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh... <laughs> do I know any compulsive talkers? I don't know. You, you, I, 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 I suppose you'd make it, try to make a joke out of it. Okay. What about you, Alan? I have gotten to the point where I'll say to them, I can't remember a time 
when you weren't telling this story. <laughs> How do you handle that, Alan? I, I'm asking you to get advice. I, <laughs> I must I, be fortunate. I, I don't know a lot of compulsive talkers. I handle it a different way every time, I think. I go, uh-huh, or I say, I, I got to go... Uh, Get another cracker. My cheese needs cracker. I think I may have dodged that question because I'm the compulsive talker in the in this in the scenario. Well, how do people handle you? <laughs> My wife says, "Why don't you go get kidnapped so you can have new stories?" <laughs> new th- I think your wife has a career. New things to tell, so really I don't have funny. to hear that same story for the sixtieth time. Okay, here's one that maybe is easier. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party? you have a technique for that? You know, just last night, a couple of people came to watch the podcast, and they were very interesting people. And I, the first thing I said to them, and I kicked myself for this, is what do you do? Like, what, do you, what do you do for a living? Because I thought that that's always a fallback. That's, and why, that's why a, didn't it work? Because I don't know. Well, I was, I was kicking myself for asking that. It doesn't, oh. seem like the, it doesn't seem like the best way to get to know somebody. Uh, what about you, Alan? I usually go... Are you finished with that? <laughs> can I have some? Can I have your bread? <laughs> can I have bread? <laughs> I was interviewing a writer, a comedy writer. She's rather famous. I won't use her name. And within the first five minutes, we met in a restaurant to talk. And within the first five minutes of sitting down, she was eating out of my plate. Do you find that odd? Yeah. I find it odd whether it's a comedian or not. <laughs> Didn't know her at all. Yeah, yeah, the comedy wow. writer. And she just was. She just said you. She didn't even ask. She, she just, just started was, taking. Oh, not even asking. No, just started taking pickles off my plate. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, last question, and I want to say you've all done terribly so far. <laughs> <laughs> what gives you confidence? I thought he was going to say what gives you the right. <laughs> no. <laughs> what does anything give you confidence? This is incredible. I usually get answers to these questions. Yeah, um, I'm going to say something to flatter both of you. What? That I'm that I that that I, I I've had an opportunity to come here and sit with the two of you guys who I've admired for for decades. Gives me confidence. Wow. It's a nice kick. It's a nice pick me up. Wow. You should have gone second because I'm going to. Does it give you confidence to hear him say that? Well, now I have confidence because I was going to say my kids. I was going to say something as basic as my family, but um, uh, to hell with them. (laughs) Yeah, as a matter of fact, say it again. I'm feeling a little low. Thank you, guys. Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thanks. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Alan Zweibel is currently preparing Bunny Bunny for a return to the New York stage. And he's writing a cultural memoir for Abrams Books called Laugh Lines, 40 Years Trying to Make Funny People Funnier. Also, a movie he co-wrote with Billy Crystal called Here Today stars Billy and Tiffany Haddish and is scheduled to start production in the fall. You can learn all about his projects at alanzweibel.com. 
Frank Santopadre is currently a writer for ABC's The View. He's written award shows, Comedy Central roasts, and the Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. And he's scripted material for everyone from Bill Murray to Meryl Streep to Howard Stern. He's also the producer and co-host of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast. I love that podcast, and I've been a featured guest, too. So please go ahead and subscribe to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all the rest. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Alison Schrager. She's the author of a book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. It's a book that not only has a fascinating title, but it also has a wealth of knowledge about how to negotiate and how to understand risk. So I get an email from them saying, well, if you're going to be writing about brothels, you should be writing about the best brothel because we're the best brothel. <laughs> I was like, I don't write about brothels. But... Um, <laughs> I'm going to take this call, obviously. If you, When you read the book, you see I went into all these strange subcultures. So I had to bang on a lot of doors to get people to talk to me and explain the secrets of how things work. And I heard no a lot. And it was actually the time in the brothel I had before that I think really got me to be at a point where, like, Dennis said to me, you know, if you don't hear no, you haven't asked for enough. Mm. And I'm like, all right, I still hate hearing no, but I tell myself every time someone says no to me, I asked for enough. Useful lessons learned in unexpected places. Alison Schrager, next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>